Hi, I'm Morvan. I love the craft behind winemaking and love hearing good stories about great wine. But wine still intimidates me, and here's the clanger. I work in the wine industry. If it intimidates someone who works amongst it, how on earth do the normal folk get on out there? People who just like to drink the stuff and don't want to engage in all the wine wank. Not Serious Wine Chats originated in Melbourne, the dream child of a good pal, Dominique, who owns her own restaurants and shares my frustrations. After much lamenting over Zoom chats and wine, we agreed that Aotearoa could do with some Not Serious Wine Chats too. The deal is, no big words, no agendas and no wine reviews. We're not here to judge the winemaker or the wine drinker. We just want to chat about wine and other delicious beverages that float our boat and make our day. Welcome to Not Serious Wine Chats. Hi, I'm Morvan, and today on Not Serious Wine Chats, I'm joined by Pete and John from By the Bottle as we host Bannockburn winemaker Matt Dicey. Matt will be known to many of you as the winemaker behind Mount Difficulty, but he and his brother James, a grape grower, had started a side project in 2005. The label was called Series, and after 14 years of quietly grafting away at this family project, they realised the brand wasn't performing how they needed it to. Matt talks to us about the decision to chuck out years of work and investment and start afresh with a new label which they decided to call Dicey. The brothers launched the new look brand right on COVID kickoff. Not ideal, but it was definitely Dicey. Fast forward to present day and they've not only scooped up a gold pin at the Best Awards for the new look label, but they've just released a premium handcrafted Pinot Noir in a box. It's a cute little two litre brick that is designed to look like a cube on top of a cube. At Not Serious Wine Chats, we couldn't be more chuffed. Bag and box wine lasts a lot longer than your average bottle, so it's about time someone finally put juice in a box that's worth savouring. So punch that perforated edge, pop the tap and pour yourself a tumbler from a two litre bagnum and get comfortable. This is the Not Serious Matt Dicey Chat. Welcome to the podcast studio today is the one and only Matt Dicey from Dicey. Do we say Dicey or Dicey Wines? Dicey Morph. Dicey. Just Dicey. Simple. It's just simply Dicey. Yeah, Simply Dicey. I love it. Yeah. And joining Matt and myself is Pete and John from By The Bottle. So, hi to mine. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, lovely to be up in the big smoke. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's been a bit of an unusual gig making it up this way. Yeah. For in the sense of doing a podcast or in the sense of getting just, out of Just getting out. Yeah. yeah, just getting out. After just, the last few years. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. So, yeah, just escaping. Yeah, because you launched Dicey, we would have been, were we in lockdowns? Uh, no, we were like just before that, the, that, the Auckland lockdown. Sorry, to, yeah. that Dicey dinner was like when um, the dinner on so I should specify, but like when all of the team got knocked out, I think. That's yeah, right. so that was a, that was a, that was a, yeah. we'd already tried once. We, when we actually launched, we launched in February of 20 and we did this roadie in a 1971 Holden Kingswood from Cromwell and we were coming to launch it at Western Springs in the VIP area, oh, which it. is which was fantastic. There's nothing VIP about the VIP area <laughs> at Western Springs, which is really quite cool. Um, and we got to like Taupo and they said, nah, Auckland's locked down. So we did oh, this little man. twirl around through the middle of nowhere in the middle of sort of out of King Country and ended up blowing up the Holden in like New Plymouth or out of New oh, Plymouth somewhere. So we just, <laughs> just ditch it and fly home. <laughs> we actually got a towed oh. into Whanganui and yeah, yeah, it stayed wow. there for about three months or something. But yeah, then we jumped in this really tiny little Honda Jazz and drove down to It's a pretty funny end to the trip. So it's not quite quite how we imagined it going, or it could have been exactly how we imagined it going, yeah. It was absolutely dicey one way or the other, mate. Yeah, it was pretty funny, yeah, <laughs> side of the road with the tow truck with the, yeah. <laughs> the old yeah, old yeah. Uh, yeah, that was an unexpected, yeah. So, the, the great thing was is that James had managed to get the decal uh, done in time for the trip, so the, it was quite fitting to get that footage of this, you know, branded <laughs> station wagon getting hoisted up onto the back of the truck. Yeah, <laughs> done. Yeah. Yeah. No, no more. So yeah, so we did launch just before the world sort of went into its weirdest and wonderful latest incarnation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it must be a relief to sort of be getting it out there yourselves 
more now. Oh, finally. Yeah. 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 Pulling some of the money out of the Bank of Air New Zealand yes. and, uh, <laughs> and using that to fly around the country again. It's like, yeah, it's quite cool not spending money and going on flights, but yes. that'll run out. It means you've already spent it, but still, yeah. it'll be. But it feels yeah. free. Feels free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. excellent. More credits to use. <laughs> yeah. I sort of want to um, go back because I think one of the things about you guys that really interests me is that you were really right there at the start of the establishment of Central Otago, but, you know, Bannockburn in particular. Can you sort of take us back through that sort of beginning and where you were at with it? Because I know your dad was very, yep. very yeah, yeah. involved. Yeah, the whole far now essentially was. Um, so they were, we came, came to Central and on a ski trip actually in the late 80s and uh, my dad actually got on a hovercraft in the middle of Lake Wanaka and had to bribe the hovercraft driver to actually saw Ripon in the distance and wasn't part of the tour and he had to bribe bribe the hovercraft guy to go over and look at the vineyard met Rolf and went oh shit you can actually grow grapes in central Otago and he was actually a viticulturalist and that's what brought us to New Zealand um, right and that sort of started the whole little journey saying actually well maybe we can we can sort of get back into growing grapes and so where were you on holiday from uh, so at the time we were living in uh, Karikari, right. uh, growing kiwi fruit. Yeah, yeah. right, right, yeah. right. Which yeah. was all boom. Totally boom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a total boom. It was right in the midst of everything going going AWOL. And, and he'd sort of set up this quite cool little business where it was all about contract growing. So all of the Queen Street farmers that were, wanted to have a little kiwi fruit orchard. Yeah. So he took that model down to Central Otago and used that to fund essentially creation of his vineyard which was Long Gully uh, which became one of the sort of the, the cornerstones of, of Mount Divoli in, yeah. in later years. So that was sort of right in the early 90s and that and I was sort of a failed engineering student right. um, <laughs> and ended up sort of going well I didn't quite know what I was going to do and ended up going down and helping plant some of the vineyard. Um, and that le- ended up leading to this amazing dinner with this lady called Anne Pinkney, um, who was a real, she was one of the real early pioneers. Actually, the first wines were actually made in her winery in Central Otago. Uh, so the first of the Central Otago wines. So the likes of um, Ripon and, and Gibson Valley and things, they actually made them in uh, Anne Pinkney's Terramere winery. So she'd actually trained as a as a as a sort of um, vigneron in in um, Germany and she sort of came across and said well you know winemaking it's a thing you know and we started talking about what you could do as a winemaker where it could take you uh, and it really seemed to connect you know I had super interest in travel I'd done a chemistry degree I didn't want to be a chemist I couldn't see myself in the lab coat quite <laughs> further who I was but that was the pathway I was on towards the lab coat um, and, and we had this amazing night we drank more great booze than was sort of feasible and then being the, being the, the early 90s she jumped in the car and drove home <laughs> and I was like wow that's, that's quite that's quite a something yeah, so that's definitely a life goal right there um, so yeah not not a modern life goal uh, so, and then that, that sort of started me down that whole winemaking pathway so I ended up going to Lincoln and being one of the early sort of people through the Lincoln Wine School Yeah. Um, and then yeah when did Lincoln wine. actually start doing its wine course because that's an interesting I sort of I've just always sort of thought they were there but they won't have been will have been in fairly yeah I think I see like the third or the fourth sort of intake so I think the first ones came out in like 91 or 1992 right. yeah, yeah. and I, you know, I finished up in 94 mm. um, so it was definitely quite early on in the piece it was all sort of getting going as a program mm. um, and it was just a postgrad and masters program back then there was no degree course or anything and we, did we, you plant that vineyard out there was you a part of that because there's a little vineyard there's a, no that, that vineyard was actually planted in like the 70s by oh, wow. David Jordan so there was a that, that that history was was already there. They they had sort of that part of of Canterbury and the whole um, those early sort of wine growing scene was there had been there for quite a long time. But they right. had, there was no sort of um, university career path that would take you down that that sort of that, that 
branch I guess but yeah yeah, yeah. I made some horrible Riesling from that vineyard <laughs> <laughs> I think we all the students have made a horrible something from that vineyard yeah 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 I do remember a fantastic day though after making some sparkling pinot there and being in a lab and just disgorging badly wow. which just means the entire lab was just <laughs> the red wine and there was just dripping off everything like well it might be a bit of a clean up <laughs> God, that's all fun and games until someone loses an eye. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nobody lost an eye. We're eleven. Yeah, yeah good. That's yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. And then from there, where so, so from uni to what? So had Robin already started working down in? Yeah, they, they, were, they, they were establishing the vineyard, and then I did the I did a couple of vintages in New Zealand. Uh, did one at Peak Bay, then headed up and did one in Gisborne, um, and then from there ended up uh, in to a sort of little experimental winemaker role um, at uh, Matua, um, yeah. which was really cool. So they had a, uh, they were quite advanced in their thinking about what they could potentially do. So we were trialling sort of, this is the uh, mid 90s now, so 96, and, and they, were, they brought in a whole pile of sort of Chardonnay um, clones and Pinot clones, and it was the beginning of sort of all of the clones starting to come into New Zealand. So they said, well, let's start a little pilot program so I got to do the vintage with them but also make all of these little little pilot batch wines and see what these wow. different clones were potentially capable of and start a whole little process um, so that, that was really fun actually mm. um, and then went overseas for a bunch of years and did the sort of the travelling winemaker thing and worked in North America and Europe and South Africa and yeah all over. And South Africa is a home, right? So the so the family heritage of winemaking actually was established in South Africa. Uh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So I was born in South Africa. Um, so the whole family was born in South Africa, um, and we've got sort of three or four generations that stretch back and mainly growing grapes. You know, South Africa's much bigger, so we had a couple of hundred acres of grapes that the folks just gave to the family to so that they could leave. Um, uh, and um, that was the, the sort of, but there'd been sort of three or four generations previously that had, that had been growing grapes or um, fruit in the, in the sort of the Western Cape, yeah. And what made you guys come out to New Zealand? So was that an immigration thing for Robin and Margie? Your, yeah. Your oldies, your folks? They didn't, they, they wanted to raise us somewhere that wasn't South Africa, you know, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. the, they, we came out, we yes. landed up in New Zealand and late 70s, 77, yeah. um, and they'd seen the sort of the writing on the wall, they didn't want to be a part of what South Africa was or um, where it was going, so apparently my dad rang up his best mate one night, midnight, and said, that's it, we're out, are you coming? Because they'd always said, if you wow. leave, we'll, we'll go too, and they said, uh, let's sleep on there, we'll, we'll think about it. <laughs> uh, and so he applied, so he actually had sort of formal viticulture training, uh, been through a school called Elsenberg in South Africa, and um, they, so he sort of applied, he'd, he'd been lucky enough to do a world trip when he was a, a youngster and had worked in Australia and worked in California um, and worked in Europe and a few places and so knew that he wanted to go somewhere English speaking um, sort of and they'd actually narrowed it down to if they were going to go somewhere it was going to be uh, New Zealand or Canada so sort of those mm. are the two places that he applied and Australia uh, didn't want to go to the States didn't really see that as a fit but sort of thought the other ones would all potentially be a fit and got a job offer from Corbyn's um, to um, establish a new viticulture area in New Zealand uh, and so they brought the family out um, and we ended up in Tolaga Bay uh, setting up a couple of hundred acres of, of vineyard sort of um, on the Tolaga Bay flats, super fertile um, they grew like Billy-O uh, and funny enough I was talking to somebody just yesterday um, who'd been working for Corbyn's in, in that same era and he pulled up a bottle out and he said it was a, it was a 19, it was a 26 year old Chenin Blanc that had cut, there was a Tolaga Bay Chenin Blanc Classic. and he said it was unbelievably good oh, yeah, yeah, it's no like, way. yeah but the vineyard got bold and bowler in, in 88, so Cyclone Bowler came through mm. destroyed the whole, oh, whole vineyard but mm. yeah, we only lasted there a couple of years, Robin's not really a, so much of a corporate company guy so he lasted a couple of years with them before saying no um, yeah, we'll go and, go and tread our own path and that's how we ended up in Kiri Kiri Kiri. Yeah. Oh no, uh, Kiri Kiri. Kiri. yeah, growing, growing Kiri fruit for a number of years, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so formative years for, for us were really sort of more Kadikani than anywhere else Right, yeah. 
but there was a bit of a there was a, a bit of um, experience and knowledge behind spying Ripon from a what was it from a hovercraft <laughs> yeah 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 when I brought that story up when we released the, the Dicey Wines and, and Nick Mills just said yeah that everybody in Monica hated the hovercraft because it was remember so that. noisy remember that. <laughs> you could yeah, just yeah. really hear it from everywhere yeah. just cranking across the yeah, lake making yeah. a huge amount of noise just and ruining the whole, yeah. the whole beautiful scenery and like you know, it's peaceful and there comes a the hovercraft there's also yeah. a real by Ripon too there's actually a, a sort of of a um, natural sort of amphitheater that sort of reverberates a, across Capture, the lake again yeah. too. Yeah. So the noise would be sort of amplified to the max by going over that close, especially because Ruby Island's right in front of Ripon yeah. too. So I bet you, I bet you ended up over there a lot. Didn't like it. No, there is. <laughs> there is. Yeah, yeah. So something caught your parents' attention about Bannockburn. Yeah, well they, so they'd actually done, so at that stage there'd been a whole pile of work done um, because they knew it was going to get flooded, they were putting the Clyde Dam in, uh, so they got this guy called Gordon Cousins to do a, a climatological study on, if, seeing as they were going to lose some prime fruit growing areas within the Cromwell Gorge, Yeah. Um, so they did these climate studies and that, that they sort of illustrated you know, where it was warm enough and dry enough and, and really sort of um, pinpointed Bannockburn as that driest and warmest and you know most frost free of the of the sort of growing regions within sort of that area that subtends Lake Dunstan so yeah. basically the Cromwell Basin uh, so they'd done that work and actually they looked at further afield as well they looked at Gibston and a few other bits and pieces and that work was picked up by by Robin and it was also picked up by um, John Olson and Stuart Elms so all three of them so Olson's Felton Road and our Long Gully Vineyard were all planted at the same time essentially and all based on that same bit of data that said this little bit at the end of Felton Road is, is your warmest driest most frost free and you know when people were looking in the early 90s Central was way off the radar and people like you know there'd been a couple of ripping wines that had that had sort of stood up and caught a bit of attention you know the Rudy Bauer was there in 91 92 mm-hmm. 90 as well and they were they were really warm bright vintages you know just before we hit Pinatubo in 93 94 so the 90 91 92 were really hot bright vintages and ripping was just magnificent uh, and really it won a few trophies and awards from from memory um, what was Pinatubo? What did you say, Pinatubo? Yeah, like so Pinat- no, the, the the volcano eruption. Oh, the eruption. Of yeah, yeah. Yes, so yes, Pinatubo yes. ended up making our two coldest summers. Yes. So ninety three and ninety four were both really cold. We went through that ash blanket thing. Yeah. Um, that's when they discovered the flying planes through ash clouds. Wasn't not a good idea. Great no, idea. Did they find that out the hard way? Yeah, yeah. Oh. They literally oh. they flew. They didn't realise what ash would do to a jet engine, and they flew these things not knowing what would happen. And they sort of got to the other end, and they looked at the plane. And like, holy shit that's not so great yeah. is it you know, <laughs> everything pocketed and oh, wow. so they're oh, scored and yeah so that's now the old no let's fly around the edge <laughs> yeah god it's yeah. amazing isn't it when you think about the kind of the you know global weather patterns and global events that you know Shape. something that shouldn't make a difference but well that you so, think wouldn't make a difference but it totally does yeah. Yeah. yeah isn't that incredible yeah um Yes, the Pinatubo. So, but those those early ones, they really sort of illustrated that there was some potential within Bannockburn. But everybody was saying, "Look, it's so cold. Yeah, you know, you're going to be lucky if you get a a harvest, you know, once in every five years, and be prepared to be frosted for you know three or four years and not have a crop. You know, it was pretty dire the stuff yeah, that people wow. were sort of portraying as to whether there was a viability within Central Otago um, towards growing grapes." So what's been really interesting, you know, following that for the last sort of three decades now, and you know, in those three decades on that Long Gully vineyard, there was a light frost in '97 that caused a bit of damage, um, and there's a little bit of frost in a couple of other years that just sort of penetrated the vineyard slightly. And a wind machine went on, and after '97, but the vineyard has never been impacted by frost. Wow! Yeah. So that's so, a real site site selection. Exactly, yeah. So it really illustrates that sort of importance of the work that they did and that work that those scientists did that said, you know, this is a, a good place, it should be warm enough and frost-free enough and, yeah. you know, that has proven to, to really be the, be the case. Yeah. Mm. Do you remember watching the valley fill up? 
Do you remember watching that river fill up with the lake? Yeah, yeah. I was I was overseas when the um, so I sort of was there for on and off for bits and pieces. Um, but yeah, from nothing to half the half filled it and then slowly filled it and took them a long time to to actually fill the fill the lake because they were so worried about all the you know the water filling those they'd done all of that what is another three or four hundred million dollars worth of tunnels and stuff they put in the walls because wow. mm-hmm. uh, they were suddenly worried that if they filled it actually the the they'd get all this water loading in the in the in the mountains and the mountains aren't that stable and the mountains would just end up with big slips so they ended up doing these big stabilization <laughs> projects and digging these massive 14 kilometers of tunnels or something yeah. in the Cromwell Gorge so yeah. to try and stabilize the whole thing yeah super random so yeah, it did slowly fill, um, but it took them a while to actually get it get it full. Um, I vaguely remember it. I definitely, I've got, I've definitely got memories of what the um, that stretch from Alex to Cromwell when driving through that as a river, yeah. you know, or by the river, and looking at all the apricot trees and houses that used to be there. Yeah, mm. the houses and the yes. railway line, yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. The bridge that you go over now that's at the top end of Cromwell is actually called Deadman's Point Bridge because if you jumped off, if you went in the river at that point, there, there were massive rapids and there was a good chance you'll be at Deadman. So don't mm. go in a, from Deadman's Point. So if you go right. swimming in the Clutha, that was as far as you went swimming. Mm. Was, they, were, they were big rapids. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? And that research too, you know, sort of had that research not been available, you know, would have been maybe a different story for the whole of Central Otago. People like your folks and the likes of Stuart Elms and those guys not taking a punt. Yeah, totally. I mean, that really did give them a, something to hang their hat on and say, actually, we can, with a little bit of confidence, plant some grapes here. That's, it's warm enough and, you know, dry enough and frost-free enough. So, and yeah. speaking of confidence, you're your parents were quite sort of um they knew pino was gonna well they were gonna have a good punt at pino right from the outset i think that's where those early pinots of of ripens because you know what was planted early on there was there was Syrah, there was capron there was cabernet there was all sorts of things yeah. that were actually planted um but those, those early wines that came out of gibson that came out of ripon it was the pinot that had shone so even by the time they got to 91 92 Pinot was already sort of the love child of, of Central from yeah. the, from that sort of perspective. Oh, early on. Yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, when you think of, like, if you look at what was planted in, in 92, and it, also how small it was, you know, it was only five-odd hectares before those vineyards went in. Yeah. So there was nothing planted in Central Otago in sort of 1989, 90. So, you know, when, Elms and the, when those three put their sort of five, six hectares in, that doubled the size of the whole industry. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It really... <laughs> in the ground and, and then and then other people like your folks planted you know they were in 93 they were a bit earlier than that i think 91 i think they planted in 91 i think i think they, I think they grabbed i think they grabbed cuttings in 91 and then because, oh no true that would yeah. be right that'd be right yeah they, their sign wood and everything was a mix of ripon and, and black ridge black and ridge. stuff like that yeah, yeah. So that's right that's and then, right and all of those early guys there was no material so they had to go and you had to gather your own material. My dad did a nursery up here in, in the Bay of Plenty because he mm. knew it would grow well. Your folks had to go and grab their sign material and do the grafting and, and put the plants in. So you know, it was yeah. a lot harder to actually do any of this. There just wasn't the commercially available material to go and buy and get all of that stuff done or, or access um, rootstocks and things of that nature. Yeah, the infrastructure yeah. definitely wasn't there, was it? And it wasn't even really there for kind of the, I mean, not, you know, I mean, Mum and Dad, you know, lived in a skyline garage for the first five years while that nursery got established, you know, kind of. A, it was sort of that real era of true pioneers, really, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, you had to you had to be committed and really sort of have an understanding of, of, of everything you wanted to try and achieve mm-hmm. uh, and give it, a, give it a good will. Yeah. Especially, I mean, from all accounts... Central Otago seems to be a region where the producers are all really good at supporting each other. But not to have the um, sort of benefit of anybody's experience when you're starting all those things, it must have been bloody scary. 
Well, the problem was a bit unusual in that he did have some viticultural experience, yes. but certainly the likes of your folks and like all of the other guys that were getting going, they all got going without that without that experience so you know there was certainly not that and I think that is partly why it, the early pioneers were, were really sort of um, inclusive and together and cohesive as a group and you know a lot of knowledge sharing and even now that still that still permeates the culture and yeah. we're super lucky that that's, a, that's always been the sort of the the, the ideology behind how it's, an, an industry should work is cohesively together and that, that through unity you can achieve so much more than you can on your own and I think it's more sort of um, important for somebody like Central where it's a bunch of small wineries yeah. there's no, there's no there, there wasn't anybody large so you know nobody had the ability to take it to market and take a volume of it to market um, so it was all about sort of that smallness of and, and everybody being able to share and to be able to do stuff together um, and even now there's only something like 25 or 26 actual wineries in Central yeah, even though there's yeah. 140 different brands out of Central mm, so you mm. know, there's actually very few actual wineries within in Central Otago, so even now you know all the winemakers, and you and you're quite happy to bring them all up and ask questions and have them ask questions of you. So that collaborative nature still still remains today, which I and it really enjoy. shines through as someone to sort of had the pleasure of visiting a few times. That you do kind of get people saying, "Oh yeah, I was on the phone to so and so," and they were saying, "You know, there's this real sense that you are actually all in." We don't just talk it, it's, it's actually live. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. There's also some sort of, you know, quite lovely magic in that sort of naive start. You know, <laughs> you know don't you reckon? <laughs> is that the nicest way to put that? But, you know, like it is sort of, there, there is, when you don't quite know the consequences or you're not quite sure how things are going to happen, the idea of taking a risk is well you've sort of just got to do it yeah and you don't you don't actually realize the scale of the obstacles how you know how big things are and how hard things are to do and how hard it is to export wine and how how much wine there actually is in the world and you know what you're actually up against no you're just battling away on your little property in the Mm. middle, middle of nowhere without that sort of conscious knowledge weighing down on you so it actually is harder but it's easier I so think. Yeah, that's youthful right. confidence isn't it like you know not youthful in terms of age but obviously where you are in that industry you know yep. but you, you don't have the broader of fuck this is going to be really hard you know like and also too know, you're better off yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. in many respects because it, it doesn't you know, there's not a burden you know no. it's not sitting on your shoulders going I'm going to struggle with this because wow you know I, I can look at all these other brands that haven't made it why haven't they made it you know or you know people that are struggling in different regions for, for different reasons you know you don't have any of that so it's a little that naivety is actually definitely a, a positive I think yeah, especially yeah. when you're trying to kick off and also yeah. the dam that Clyde Dam changed the face of that area so much I mean that was a huge thing to have happened to that neighbourhood in that region and, and it did change the psyche of it a lot you know some people were vehemently opposed other people thought it was the best thing since sliced bread and the fact that it did have the capacity I mean do you think about the fact that a body of water like that has the capacity to potentially change the geography and the you know sort of the capabilities of a piece of you know an entire region of land you know yeah. it sort of seems you know sort of it's quite incredible so in a lot of ways there was almost kind of that I mean I don't know don't you reckon Matt that sort of the community felt the shift and that shift meant giving things a crack was sort of actually well that's what we're up against yeah doesn't look like it did two years ago so we might as well do something different yeah it was changing anyway so people really got on board with that yeah yeah and sheep and beef is always tough you know, and it had been a historically a real sheep and beef place. You know, it had its own meatworks and all of those sort of things. And that it's been really interesting watching. You know, I sort of came back and was started in Central in '98, and that was still a big part. It was still the biggest employer in town, the meatworks in '98. Mm. Wow. You know, it took a few years until suddenly vineyards took over, and mm. you know, vineyards are now cherries. And there's been such a resurgence of interest in the whole sort of horticulture, viticulture sector, and it's now such a driver of what is the Cromwell Basin. Um, and and wool, wool used to be a big deal. The Perriam family, or, or sort yeah. of that, that Bendigo, that um, the other arm of the lake now, 
that was always sort of really that had historically was really sort of premium merinos was it merinos yes still is yeah 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 yeah. it's still you know all of those you know all of the high country farm stations Mm. around they're still Mm. merinos merino farms there's still icebreaker signs on Mm. on fences saying you know proud Mm. supplier of etc etc so you know that's still a that's still a a hallmark and you know there's nothing you can do with that land essentially other than Mm. you know grow the odd merino Mm. yeah Yeah. so it is you know in many respects it's still a pretty barren um sort of hard to break down place and it's you know it's been yeah it's really interesting you see because you've got the gold mining history there from 150 odd years ago there's quite a few photos of 150 years ago um and you you look at the hills and there's like there's nothing on the hills now but actually back then there was even less it's there's not a single tree in sight there's not a single briar bush there's not a you look at the hills and it's just stark and barren and nothing yeah no willow trees on the rivers there's 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 nothing it was really quite um quite a stark landscape we see the stark we see it now as a stark landscape it was even yeah. more stark 150 years ago mm. and the, uh, yes we put should, here, no no totally, totally. <laughs> we really should be drinking some peanut, eh? yeah i think it's uh an awesome progression <laughs> so so uh, yeah, do you want to talk us through the um, the dice by dicey, Matt? Uh, so yeah, just because we're new, I don't think we're necessarily constrained by um, uh, some of the history and constraints that other brands maybe have. So um, like all good things, this came out of a discussion over a couple of glasses of wine, and funny enough, in Morb's kitchen, mm-hmm. um, and it was. We're really interested in changing the the dynamic around you know what is how does how does wine get delivered to people and how should people drink wine and, and what in what settings do you do that and how do you do that and um, yeah, there's a lot of lot of knowledge out there that you know glasses are glass bottles are, are really energy intensive and you know they're not easy to recycle and actually as much as New Zealand's great at having a really high level of recycled glass within its bottles um, you know for us glass in central Otago is too expensive to ship back to Auckland to be recycled so it just goes reused in roads and things of that nature so there's all of this uh, embedded knowledge that actually glass is a, is a really high energy input in fact as a, as a winery it's your single highest sort of it takes up over 30% of your carbon footprint um, is actually all about transporting the glass um, and then to, to you and then taking it away and it's also a really sort of Bad format from the point of view of you know mostly what you're transporting is, is is air when you transport a case of wine so there's a lot of air in a case of wine so you're not it's not a very efficient package all of those sort of things so and we also know that you know over 98 percent of wine that's drunk is drunk within 48 hours mm. of it being bought so you know why do we need it in a in a vessel that is great for keeping wine for years decades you know for a really long time when actually 98 percent of us are going to buy it and within 48 hours it's going to be in the recycling so it's like and and then there's a whole pile of other things if you open a bottle you feel obliged to finish it because mm-hmm. it's going to go off within a couple of days um, you know the longest you can keep a bottle open for is about three days and then it starts to really taste a bit tired and old so there are all of these sort of issues with glass um, as, a, as how we drink wine um, and the sort of the occasions that we drink it and we were the, the conversation really was well, what alternatives are there uh, and this bag and box was something that the Australians invented in about the 60s, sometimes oh, through the 60s. Recent. Yeah, recent. And, and didn't start using until I think early 70s, like actually in terms of the... In terms of yeah, commercially, yeah. 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 And, and there's, you know, and actually New Zealand has been quite instrumental in, in sort of the, the film development, the, the bag and box, the liners, the actual bags, I think those, that was oh, a really? real, yeah, New Zealand was sort of led the world in sort of that film development, getting it to, into clear, lower oxygen sort of transmission, because uh, wine, uh, the enemy of wine is oxygen, so, you know, trying to keep oxygen away, which is what glass does so well, how do you do that in plastic without, um, you know, how do you stop that, that air getting into the, into the wine and making it essentially it was a big problem in the 80s wasn't it i think that oxygen and i think apparently the seal on the valve was like the yeah rubbish yeah yeah. yeah so you know a lot of those problems have are sort of have been tackled and and are sort of a lot better now the technology has come a, a long way from from where it was 
but unfortunately everything that went into it back in the box was you know El Cheapo yeah. was all was all sort of um, pasteurised pasteurised uh, other end <laughs> yeah. well, you know, when was the last time you drank anything from a bag and box I, I have in the oh, last three years yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> true colours coming out really late at a party no, it, was, it was some pretty cool uh, Italian oh, yeah, right. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff right so, <laughs> so <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't count but I want to give in context of history and what Bag in the Box was cool was Italian natty stuff is it Bag in the Box material I, I definitely remember like poking around the fridge when I was a little young young fella and like drinking out of mum and dad's there was always yeah, yeah there's yeah, always a cask in the fridge yeah. <laughs> there was always a cask in the fridge yeah. and I, yeah. I think that's really interesting yeah. you know I always think it's really interesting the way that we grew up in the time that our industry in New Zealand did so my parents had a cask of wine in the fridge and then it was a bottle of Corbin's Johannesburg Riesling and then it was a bottle of um, you know uh, Oyster Bale so. yeah or Kim Crawford Sauvignon yeah. Blanc and yeah, then it was other varietals and it's kind of like just we grew up watching that the come timeline, on that yeah, evolution yeah. And, and one of the things that never evolved with that was actually what people were putting yeah. in the box yeah. Yeah. they actually stayed with what our parents had been drinking and if you go into a supermarket now it's still the same brands yeah, with really ugly is. now sort of stuff out of um, Argentina and Chile and yeah. you know somewhere not actually New Zealand yeah. we, don't, we don't make that cheap and those wines so still sell that's still a huge yeah big big market isn't it? I mean there's a reason sold. that they're still making them it's because they're still selling them yeah. Yeah. I remember doing vintage and like we knew one tank was like send all the bottom of the other tanks off to this one tank and that was being pasteurised and turning into a box like they were still killing it on it you know yeah. well, I think when I worked at Montana Wines in 2003 I have a feeling don't quote me completely on this but I, I seem to recall the number being something like total production was 60% box I'm not really? surprised in 03 yeah because wow. I remember I had to generate reports for for um, management and I remember doing this report about three times thinking I'd got it wrong because it seemed so high like that seems ridiculous who drinks out of a cardboard cup? Yeah. but again that's sort of if you think of that evolution of like us growing up and even in 03 uh, you know the New Zealand wine industry is still pretty fledgling yes yeah. you know, you're not yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. you know you're not you're, you're Kim Crawford's around and things like that but there's not the plethora of great brands or lots of souvenir like there is now mm, yeah. that's uh, right. you know that's quite a different space Miami Wine Cooler was probably the biggest departure Miami I remember wine cooler. <laughs> the ultimate four pack to <laughs> With <laughs> its jazzy Miami neon yeah. pink flamingo brand. I remember a few nights on Miami wine cooler. <laughs> yeah. From yeah. from a sort of a, a producer point of view and winemaking point of view, anything that you've had to change to reflect the product you want that's in the bag, I guess. Um, like from when we went when we set out to make this 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 wine, like when we so this is so our dicey project is all off sort of our own vineyards and this one's a little bit different um, in that we bought the fruit in for this um, only because we couldn't get access to all of our vineyards so come from next year actually this will come off our vineyard as well uh, so that's that was more we wanted to get going with uh, with this project though um, and so when we started we're like no we want to make a, a 30 buck pinot so that was the you know and that's talking in bottle terms so yeah. everything was tailored to well if we're going to make this how are we going to make it what are we going to make and and the, actually the fact it was going in a bag and box didn't change any of that thinking yeah. so there's no thinking that said oh we've got to do this because it's going into a into a box and only in the last uh, we, we're just in the process of, of bottling them now bagging it not bottling it mm. um, and only in the last sort of Two weeks, if I started calling friends in the industry, some guys at Puno, some guys at Yalumba, and saying, uh, "What do you have to do to put it in a bag?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you know, only now, right, like right at the end, so that final winemaking considerations, and what what do we have to do to, you know, what are the bottling specs, or the bag specs that change it? So, it's wine, you know, right up until two weeks ago, that had never been part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. I remember talking to Jenny Dobson about that shift from cork to Stelvin and that she was consciously thinking about her winemaking and things like with I think it was a Chardonnay she was thinking a little bit a bit more about some more bassinage yep. so it's least stirring to build a little bit more texture that wouldn't develop perhaps as earlier in the wine 
but you're saying that for you you haven't felt the need I guess because it's We've got a little bit of that experience with, um, you know, that the, the change to screw caps. Did yes, bring yeah, in. yeah, yeah. So you know, and and understanding. So you know, I think there's a better industry understanding the industry now of the role that oxygen plays. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas when we were going to screw caps, you know, that that knowledge wasn't there. So you know, it was like, well, we're in cork and we're going to screw cap. That's quite different. Yes, and, and yeah. It was, and there was definitely a lot of conversation. There was, you know, there was whole winemaking seminars on. You know how do we prep our wines for for screw cap, and there's a you know screw cap initiative that put out books and all sorts of stuff. Um, so that, there was a so I think there's been a large amount of learning around, and actually bag and box has been around for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know the, the, those conversations, we've got a better understanding, I think, of all of the sort of the technical details of what needs to happen. Yeah, and they must have it down to a fine art. Some of those guys with the you know the production that they're doing yeah the, the commercial end yeah, is yeah. like super honed in on <laughs> but it is that it's the commercial end so it's been interesting having those conversations with you know the guys at Puno and Yulumba and stuff and you know it's like we're putting this in they're like awesome they're excited to see good quality gear they yeah. actually believe it in, in it as a as a packaging medium yeah you know so they actually and yeah. one of the funny one of the, the guys ring ring I was talking to the um John who's the guy at Pune he's like yeah all the winemakers they ring two weeks before Christmas and ask if we can put some good gear in the bag so that they can take it away wow. for Christmas wow. as a as a little yep there's a there's some you know they know that you can that it's a really handy yeah. medium for for taking to the beach or you know yeah yeah or I had a friend who was he was hiking around the South Island and um, he was just making that very point he was like I'd have to take a bag yeah you know because it's what works really practically about not leaving waste anywhere and weight and all of that and he says but it means I just have to ship, uh, drink shit wine the whole time you know mm-hmm. it's, it's a game changer but that was that was classic you know we, we introduced it to Bob Campbell and even Bob was like his memories of bag and box were buying them emptying them and tipping really good booze oh, in them yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. and taking that to the beach with them yeah, so yeah. you know it's kind of like ah oh, there's actually all of this we've missed a whole yeah we've, we've <laughs> missed, <laughs> missed a whole <laughs> brilliant part it's taken us a while to learn <laughs> yeah yeah it's like uh, well, why don't we think about that yeah. But also too, yeah. the, the point you made before too about the fact that you know, the, of of the ninety eight percent of wines that are consumed, you know, within a year of being purchased or something like that, if they were packaged in bag and box, it would be the equivalent reduction of carbon footprint or carbon emissions to the removal of four hundred thousand cars. God. Off the road. That's unreal. Off the road. So, so crazy. yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a ridiculous amount mm. of carbon emissions. It's mm. like, wow, that's a lot of glass. That's just the glass bottle, you yeah. know. And and you think, well, when we're all drinking wine that we buy that fast, that turnaround, you know, that bottle literally is put in the trolley, to put in the car, put in the fridge for a night, two nights, maybe five nights at max, and then it's back in the recycling bin. Yeah. I mean, what a what a ridiculous circle. When you actually look at that, yeah, 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 from a production point of view, you know. And the beauty of these is, once it's open, it's good for like three weeks. Yeah. So because it's just the bag collapsing on itself underground, yeah. it's not getting any oxygen. So it makes no difference to how when you, you know, you've got three weeks worth of life. Maybe. Yeah. Two, two to two liters in three weeks. That's a pretty do. And you might end up with your your natty in the fridge, mm. this on the counter, yeah, you know, yeah, and you yeah. can have three or four yeah. of them on the go at once. <laughs> and you, and you, and you can just have a glass of each. And, you know, it's awesome. It's yeah. like, ah, right, and I don't have to worry about my wine getting oxidised or, or yeah, having yeah. to tip it out or drink the rest of the bottle because I'm worried that it's going to go off tomorrow. And yeah, the, the other yeah. thing we really wanted to do too, eh, Matt, is, is we definitely wanted it to be something that and, and it became an on-premise offering. Yes. Like yeah, the idea yeah. that what's what's wrong with putting a really cute little box that's not too big and doesn't take over the, the shelf on the shelf so that you can offer a really lovely glass of quality wine. Yeah where there's no knowledge confidently because, yeah, yeah. You're, not, you're not having to worry oh shit I've got three glasses of Pinot left in that bottle and mm-hmm. yeah, it's a bit yeah. of a quiet night like, or that your 20 year old barman hasn't checked the wines 
hasn't written a date on it and they're pouring old wine out yeah yeah yeah. how many times have you been to a restaurant and been disappointed you know that just because you happen to know that actually that wine would be better if if I had it two days ago yeah well I mean I just asked for them to open a new bottle but I'm a dick (laughs) (laughs) I put my hands up for that one (laughs) though everybody does and even then then you're like yeah I know I'm a dick yeah I'm enjoying my glass of wine but that's also the proposition that they're offering right that's what that's the deal you pay your money you get a nice glass of wine that you know so that is the deal and that so when it, it is so disappointing you know that you, and I just I mean I love the idea I sort of I can't wait to walk into a restaurant and see someone say, yeah, we've got this great dicey 2021 Pinot Noir. Mm. That, glass, that sounds great. Yeah, I'll have a glass of that. And then chug, 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 it comes out of the box. It's yeah. like, you know, I, I can't wait to see that in action, you know. Yeah. And people are so much more um, uh, aware of different packaging mediums. You know, mm. the whole wine in a keg, you know, mm. yeah. seeing wine in a keg and being poured in a tumbler, a depot, yeah. you know, that really changed a lot of people's perception of, you know, mm. how does wine have to be delivered? So I don't think in that on-premise setting that there's as much of the of the sort of the hoodoo to actually get over as it is to get people to, to spend the money to buy because that's not going to be a cheap, it's not going to be a $20 um, bag and box. It, and there will be a definite, like, mindset change. Okay, I'm getting to whatever leaders, but I'm paying this amount. It's just yep. doing think, the maths. Yeah, do, yeah, doing yeah. the maths. Yeah. I yeah. think you'll find that that's close to 2.65 bottles there, John. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's really <laughs> I, I think, my question. I think New Zealand's probably an interesting place to be really delving into this because, you know, when you think about, we haven't got this deeply ingrained wine culture that, you know, like the French, the change of closure from cork to to Stelvin is still an ongoing conversation and still very slow to happen. So I think our willingness to kind of go, oh, we'll give it a go kind of thing, really stands in your favour in terms of this but kind of thing kicking off. I 100% agree, but the really weird thing is that there's a bunch of companies, especially in, in France and in Spain, that are specialising in bag and box. Right. Yeah. So it's actually quite a big movement already in, especially Europe, um, not not a, quite as much in in the states, but yeah. it's definitely there's a few producers in the states. But within Europe, there are entire companies now specialising at more at this stage, not potentially producing their own, yeah. but being a negotiant and going out and buying some really good gear and then not being afraid to charge you know big bucks, yeah. you know, 50, yeah. 80 yeah. euros to put a to get a two or a three liter on your on your on your on your table. Wow. So that, and I 100% agree. New Zealand's really good without that ingrained wine culture and the snobbiness that that unfortunately brings with it. Yeah. To to accept that that it's really good, but funny enough, those those ingrained wine cultures are actually ahead of us and the, the judge yeah. on on a on a better packaging solution. Wow. Matt, do you think that you've kind of uh, that this has been an easier step for you now that you're sort of back at the steering wheel of a smaller company that's just you guys? kind of making the decisions then you know would it, is this easier now than it would have been when you were still sort of driving a fairly decent beast that had quite high production um, you know think, taking that risk yeah I think it would have been a, it would have been a hard one to get through a board you know, mm-hmm. to try and convince them that, that this is... To give this, this a go. To give, give this a go, I think yeah. that would have been a, a, a higher hurdle. Um, you know, whereas essentially it's the two families and I had this conversation with James, my brother, and he was just like, yeah, that rocks, let's get on with it. So it's like, mm. primo, Easy. on board. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it really wasn't, that was literally the... I came away from the from Morph's dining table and, we, and uh, the next night or that night later on I, I sent James a text where we're doing bag and box and he just came back and went sweet so it's like oh there's an instant sort of understanding of what that could potentially be and and being on board the journey from there has been a little bit trickier yeah, <laughs> yeah so. what's been the, the hurdles 
in terms uh, of getting it there? Just just the whole lack of infrastructure. Yeah, there, you know there isn't. You can't. None of this is is easy to do if there's not that inbuilt infrastructure. And when you're the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you don't want to just copy, and we didn't, we wanted to change the what the box looks like. You know, it, we didn't want it to be that classic rectangular two or three letter cask, which instantly says I'm a cask. Yeah. So you know that's that was part of the challenge for the design team, and they were awesome and grasping that and thinking about you know what could this look like and it's ended up being sort of a, a double cube um and, and nailed it it looks so good yeah, it's great and it does doesn't and we had out in trade yesterday and everybody said it doesn't look like a cask yeah. so yes boom take. Yeah, yeah, yeah but that also means you've got to you've got to buy the tooling to do the cartons there's a whole there's a whole process and mm. you know trying to do that in this current climate with Everything is so hard to achieve right now. Yeah. You know, anything that's not doing exactly the same as what you've already done is like really, it's like grinding slowly, like Sisyphus pushing that big stone up the hill, yeah. just feeling like it's going to roll down here any any moment. Which well, is which is crazy because it's also a time where we should probably be our most innovative. You know, like yeah, but you know, just all of those hurdles with staffing pressures like that yeah, just makes yeah, that yeah. just makes stuff so tricky right now. So yeah. logistics and getting things and yeah, yeah all of that's just as you're just fighting yeah. you know so that that has really been a bit of a bit of a battle there's um, also too the reality that these guys have only been going for a couple of years as a brand and kind of having that you know the the sort of the infrastructure and the resources to actually mm. I mean I, I'm I'm impressed purely the fact that the decision was yes to do it given that it's like maybe we should sell some more booze first so there's some money in the bank to kind of do these innovative projects but in actual fact, it's like, look, you just got to get out there and you've got to start. You know, you have to, you, it might not be absolutely perfect first off the rank, but we've got to get cracking and we've got to, and the momentum there to, to, you know, sort of keep driving that. And I think that's been, I mean, there's a lot of, there's been a lot of cost, right, to just get this to where it is now. And that's sort of uh, testament to the fact that the values that that little box of wine actually represents long term outweigh the sort of the current sort of you know harassment har- yeah that's right that's right that's right yeah that's right that's right um well listen we've been um i could sit here and drink wine and talk crap all afternoon but um we're, we're sort of time to sort of wrap it up so um is there anything you guys want to hit matt up for look look i here? um this is kind of a low-key therapy session but how do you work with family just ask me <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, <laughs> that was really well placed at the end of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad we didn't delve into that earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it gone in a really different direction. Um, look, it's a it's a really good question. But almost all my entire working life, I've worked with family. Mm. Yeah. So um, and and it does mean bigger arguments. Mm. But the, the the beauty of family and something you can't do with anybody else is you can't have an argument and five minutes later sort of have a chat about what you're doing for dinner. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. you, there's there's a whole longevity to that relationship that means you can just get over the the bullshit yeah. and get on with you know living life. Yes, and it doesn't it doesn't need to be clouded by that. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Good advice. Yeah, keep guys, talking you later. <laughs> we do all right. We have our moments. Yeah. We do all right. We but I think better, that's it. Better. Yeah, mm. but I think that's it. You, we, you are going to have moments. Yeah. But you actually, it's like, well, you're still going to be my fucking brother tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and on that perfect note, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to sit in this tiny room and sit closer than you probably should to any of us. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, man, it's exciting drinking from this little cup yeah, really of yeah. beauty. And a, and a delicious glass of wine. Yeah. 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 Cool. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Really stoked. Very yeah. Nice Fun one. to be here. Thanks. Cool. Thanks very much for listening to Not Serious Wine Chats. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd just like to take a moment to thank our mates at Antipodes Water Company for their support.